I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons and I'm joined by Paul Wall. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ned. And for a third week, uh, Anand Menon from the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Hi, Anand. Hi, yeah. Uh, we're doing it a day early this week because uh, the Brexit game appears to be afoot. Um, sources have told HuffPost that the cabinet could agree a withdrawal agreement as soon as the end of the week, uh, maybe. So uh, last night, uh, good fun, HuffPost, along with some other publications, were leaked the supposed government PR plan about how they are going to roll out the deal. Uh, included a tour of the country by the prime minister, tweets of support from the Japanese PM, um, and also big hitters on the Brexit scene, such as you and Anand, were going to be rolled out to uh, Stars of the back, show. to back the deal. <laughs> so were you approached about this? Have they got you lined up? Uh, no, and I think no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this PR plan, obviously, you know, it had the ring of truth to it in a way. Does it actually, by publishing it, or it being leaked, rather, kind of hurt it? They'll have to do something different now, won't they? Well, I mean, there are several things to be said, aren't there? One, thank God someone's planning. <laughs> Two, I mean, this looked like the sort of thing they chuck around inside government uh, for comments before coming up with a final version. There's yeah. no way, shape or form in which this is the final version, but it's a discussion document. The serious point for me is the fact that I think the optics change dramatically when, if and when the Prime Minister gets a deal, and that's what this is a recognition of. I mean, just imagine how weird it will be, for instance, that the Prime Minister and Michel Barnier appear together at a press conference, both of them speaking in favour of the same document. It'll, yeah. you know, it'll, it, it'll be a big change. The pound will go up. I mean, you saw what happened to the pound last week after the story on uh, a financial deal. Stock market will go up. I'm sure she's, as that grid said, There'll be businesses lined up to write supportive letters saying we'd like to thank the Prime Minister for providing the one thing we need, which is certainty. And just thinking it through, actually, uh, all of this can have a big impact in terms of just shifting the mood. We move into a completely different stage then. And if they handle it right, there's no guarantee of that, of course, then they might get a bump out of it and they might win over some wavering MPs. Of course, we've got to get to that point first, haven't we? So where are we now? Um, a cabinet meeting later this week, perhaps, Paul? Well, that one suggestion, and one minister said to me straight after yesterday's cabinet meeting that they'd all been told, clear your diaries, possibly Thursday, possibly Friday. Now, the PM is due to go on Friday to a, a World War I celebration, uh, commemoration. Um, so that might make things slightly difficult, although uh, that doesn't quite work out why someone was told Friday is possible. Maybe they were thinking to do it Friday morning, get it done and dusted, I don't know. Um, there's even suggestion that it could be Saturday now. Um, but what is for sure is that they really want to get this done very, very quickly. I mean, someone said to me yesterday, someone in Whitehall, that actually that this depends on two things. One is the withdrawal agreement. And, and as Anand's been saying before, it's not just that, that the deal is not just the with legal withdrawal agreement, the 
divorce, so to speak. It's the future framework of EU and UK relations and this political declaration that's going to be published alongside it. And for number 10, the deal is both. They're not indivisible. Mm. And um, someone in Whitehall said, look, we're, we're quite a long way of the way agreeing to the... Um, to the future framework, although it's not totally pinned down. But they think if they can do the withdrawal agreement first, get the cabinet signed off on that, get that parked and done, then they can things can quickly move into place when it comes to the future framework. And sort of uh, one thing we're hearing this morning is that Michael Gove and other cabinet ministers want to see the legal advice about the deal published. Uh, let's listen to Geoffrey Donaldson, who's the DUP chief whip on the Today programme this morning, uh, demanding that this advice be published? Well, because I think uh, it's in the public interest that we understand fully what is happening here. And uh, we've had that commitment already from the government that they will tell us clearly what the legal advice they have is in relation to the backstop. But you don't want them just to tell us. You want them to publish the whole thing. Yes. I'll just put it to, to you again. That's because you don't trust the people involved. No, it's because it affects the whole of the United Kingdom and therefore it shouldn't just be the Democratic Unionist Party that see this advice or the government. Uh, if the um, House of Commons is going to have a meaningful vote on uh, a deal that includes uh, and, and uh, upon which this legal advice is very, very important, then I think people are entitled to know what that legal advice is. So... Geoffrey Cox, Attorney General, is he now the most important man in government? Well, there is a case for it, isn't there? Let's be honest, his predecessor, Jeremy Wright, hasn't covered himself in glory, has he? Um, I mean, can you remember a single thing he did as Attorney General? Uh, It's very, very, (laughs) very difficult to remember anything. Now, um, he was often derided at the time when he was appointed um, by May to that job. People thought he was just basically a country solicitor, you know, this sort of demeaning description given to him. Gives um, a good that, speech. And he doesn't uh... doesn't really know much about much. But then again, Geoffrey Cox is a different beast. He's very well known in the West Country. I mean, Hacks, you talk to our own Graham Dominic, who worked on the Western Morning News, all lot of reporters who worked in the West Country know Geoffrey Cox as a real character because not only did he was he the most lucrative MP, don't forget, he, he earned a fortune as a QC, an absolute packet. And that was the only time he had ever made national headlines. But locally, he was known as being quite eccentric, you know, good fun. Um, and the world suddenly saw what he was like when he did that warm-up speech for Theresa May at this year's party conference. Mm. And obviously, because of his deep, booming voice and the fact he's a Brexiteer, lots of people like him. But um, Mufasa... And his voice has been compared to the Lion King. Um, it's worth remembering that actually Mufasa was the one who was the betrayer. And no one is suggesting really now, certainly since this week's cabinet meeting, that Cox is anyway a bag- backstabber. And, mm. and that actually, if you look back at his preamble to the May and party conference speech, it was an utterly loyal address about why you should all back Theresa May. Mm. Not I'm a Brexiteer making trouble, but actually this woman is is on our side. And he's, from what I'm told in Cabinet yesterday, did exactly the same thing and made life a lot easier for her. Yeah, and because uh, this is, of course, the legal advice is about the backstop. As always, it's about the backstop. And, and where are we now with this? What's the current plan, the current thinking that the government's trying to, or the Prime Minister, rather, is trying to get past her Cabinet? Well, I think there are two big issues here. The first is... And Paul said quite rightly there are these two documents, the future and the past. The degree to which they get some of the future in the document about the past, Mm, because the big debate is about whether this customs arrangement can be stuck in the withdrawal agreement. I wonder legally whether the European Union can do that, whether you can put something that essentially defines a future relationship in an open-ended way, as the European Union wants, Mm. 
into with a withdrawal agreement. It would certainly be fantastic for the government if they could because it gives them a bit of cover on the backstop. The second element connected to that uh, is the European Union, having had this conversation about a customs arrangement, is now saying, oh, hang on a sec, because there's all sorts of other stuff you're going to have to sign up to if you want that, uh, this so-called level playing field. If you're going to be in a customs arrangement with us, you've got, we've got to have guarantees that you're not going to try and undercut us on a whole list of things. That list seems to be getting longer and longer. And a lot's going to hinge on what they put down in that, because that's going to look awfully like regulatory alignment in order to be part of a customs mm. arrangement. I should also say in parentheses that the British government's taken a lot of stick for being unprepared for these negotiations. And I do find it hard to believe that the, the Commission didn't have in a drawer a folder, this is what we need to do if they ask for a customs union. Mm. And well, quite obviously they didn't, yeah. because they're trying to make it up now. Right, well that's a good point actually. And that that's key I think, in terms of the timing. You know, it's let's be honest, it's in the it, Brussels has all the cars when it comes to timing because the clock is ticking and we've got to somehow come up with something that is in time for our exit date next year and well before that and that's why this week um, cabinet ministers were all told basically in in failed terms but clear terms by the PM we want to wrap this up before Christmas Parliament won't tolerate a big delay between us getting the deal and then voting on it and then we've got at least three months to sort of ratify it so timing is everything the problem is as Zanon says you know time's running out not just for us but for Brussels into finding a way that actually satisfies Brussels demands for look we're not going to in any way compromise our single market or any of our rules we're not going to dilute anything that the EU really stands for there's no point being the club if you're going to uh, allow someone who leaves the club then to to break the rules and and carry on happily ever after. And more importantly, as the Irish made clear really really strongly early this week, and we shouldn't forget it that Simon Coveney, the deputy PM there, made absolutely clear that that the Irish border is such a fundamental issue to them that in many ways it's even more important than possibly losing out in a no deal. It's uh, even, and, can and I just put it for a second? Because it's even more than that. It's not just we don't want you to undermine our rules. It's even if you don't want to be bound by our rules, there are certain of our rules we're going to insist that you are bound by because we don't want you gaining a comparative advantage yeah. by having a customs union and be able to undercut us on standards and all that sort of thing. So it's, yeah. even if we don't want the single market, we might have to accept some of its rules because the French in particular are very worried about this issue of comparative advantage. Yeah, that's a good I point. Mean, so on the timing as well, I mean, how much of the timing having it done before Christmas is about agreeing with the EU and how much is about you don't want to give kind of the ERG enough kind of Christmas break to get annoyed about it? Is it about locking that in first? Or? Well, there is an element of that. It's I mean, a... the politics of it are very difficult for Theresa May if it goes into January because basically then you are goading the Eurosceptics into saying, right, come on, vote for a no deal. Um, and a, a few of them may well do that. Um, that. That's why I think today, going back to the legal advice point, what's really interesting is this... Um, unholy alliance of the Labour Party, the Eurosceptic European Research Group, and the DUP. Now, previously, all different those three different bits have been in alliance. The Labour has not been in with the DUP, but the other two bits have been together. You haven't all seen all three on the same page on one issue until this legal advice issue came up overnight. And it makes you think that actually the PM might have to just break with precedent and do 
maybe some sort of truncated, redacted summary of the legal advice. Now, civil servants in Whitehall will tell you they hate the idea of publishing any of that legal advice because mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, you, there's a precedent that you publish other legal advice. So I think there'll, there'll be a big pushback against it, but... If Labour does try and do something like a humble address in the Commons, well, they probably will. Won't procedural they, device, yeah. And if some Eurosceptics back it, then the question is: Will Whitehall delay and delay and delay in defying Parliament's will on that? And that's not a good look. Um, I do think it's really interesting on the whole issue of legal advice. You know, I don't think anyone's suggesting that what the Attorney General comes up with is illegal. Right? He's not illegally saying. You know, it's not like the Iraq war. It's a question of, did you illegally suggest that we could have a backstop of this form (laughs) or not form? I mean, no one's going to march on the streets about that, are they? But it's much more about flushing out what the, the detail of the procedures will be. And it's about more transparency. And the more transparency there is, the more the Eurosceptics think it will fall apart. Um, and that's what we're really talking about. Don't forget, too, that, you know, we, although Jeremy Wright wasn't a great attorney general, uh, you know, what qualification does does Jeffrey Cox have on EU law and the ACI and the detail of all that? You, I, I suspect very, very little indeed. You know, just as Peter Goldsmith knew nothing about international law, um, and certainly not about the UN resolutions. He was the Attorney yet, General during the Iraq. He was the Attorney General during the Iraq War. And forgive me, millennial listeners. Um, I'm a millennial. Uh, I remember that. Uh, <laughs> All right, just, po- just post-millennial about. listeners. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and Peter Goldsmith, you know, was forced by Blair to come up with a sort of legal judgment. Um, and that, that was deemed, don't forget, in a matter of life and death, he actually had to d- draft that and it was deemed sufficiently legally watertight by some in the Foreign Office to allow us to go to war. And the MOD and the you know the rest is history. Although there were some lawyers in the Foreign Office who thought that actually he got it completely wrong um, and it wasn't watertight at all. So we're in a situation where you're going to have a, a, a lawyer, a jobbing lawyer, making a decision about something as fundamental as whether or not Brexit's going to work. Um, and that's why, again... Parliament will want to yeah. see the full well, scrutiny of it because they can then put counter legal case. Yeah, I mean, talking about Labour, Keir Starmer's in Brussels today. If we listen to him actually on the radio as well this morning, uh, warning about a blind Brexit, which is one of their favourite phrases. A lot of time has been spent on the insurance policy in relation to Northern Ireland. Not enough time has been spent on the other really big issue, which is what does the future relationship with the EU look like? And as we're running out of time, and as I suspect the Prime Minister is not going to be able to get unity in her party, there is this risk that she'll go for a blind or vague Brexit, which is sort of vague words about the future relationship. And as we spoke last week about Labour's position, they're closer and closer to having to actually have one that's more solid or can they just carry on as they No, are? no, they're doing quite well yeah. at the moment with those six tests that mm. nothing can fulfil. There's no Brexit yeah. deal that yeah. can fulfil those six tests. Uh, and at the moment, the what Labour MPs seem to think is that the rebellion has been contained. They're talking about 15 Labour mm. MPs who yeah. are likely to vote with the government and no more than that. Now, if you think there's probably 40 in the European Research Group who might vote against the government, then the, the sums don't add up for mm. the government. It's worth also saying that the sceptics get two bites at this cherry. Because you get to vote on the deal. And then, of course, the government has got to put through the withdrawal agreement bill, which actually puts some flesh on the bones in terms of how we implement this, what the arrangements will be. And that goes through the full parliamentary procedure with select committees and all that sort of thing. And what I would say is the equivalent in 1973... There was, a, there was a majority of about 80 for the agreement with the European community to join. There was a majority of, I think, eight for the European Communities Act. Right. So when MPs see the detail and consider it, 
they might actually okay. change their minds. That's interesting. So in that process, in the legislation that goes through, what kind of thing could be changed? What, what could we see the arguments be around on that? On the well, the point is that when the withdrawal agreement bill mm. comes to Parliament, both Houses of Commons get a, get a go, both Houses of Commons get to stick amendments on it. Mm. You, you have to go through the whole parliamentary process twice, except the second time round, MPs have had Christmas probably to sit down and ponder what they really think and to consult Plot. amongst themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And they get a longer parliamentary process in which to cause trouble. The interesting thing is when that bill's going through Parliament, the European Parliament will already have started its consideration in parallel based on the fact that we've agreed it in Parliament once. Yeah. And things could get very, very messy at that point. It could get very messy because our guys, the Euroskeps, could cause really, um, you know, upset the apple cart, just as European Parliament thinks it's actually sw- swinging it on its merry way, despite... And don't forget, they they have swallowed a lot of medicine they don't want to swallow either. Yeah. And, and some of them, and as Alan says, the French think that we've been giving far too good a deal if, if May's deal good, does go ahead. So... So, I mean, what happens if the kind of legislation comes out at the end different than what the withdrawal agreement looks like in Westminster? The European Parliament's agreed one other thing. Is that just kind of then... We could be heading for no <laughs> deal, couldn't we? I mean, yeah, I think if, if the amendments substantively alter the withdrawal agreement, then we've rejected it Yeah. in its current form. It needs to be renegotiated or we'll leave them with no deal. I mean, if they're, if they're procedural, mm. so take one hypothetical, if one of the amendments is we accept this but we need to have a referendum first... <laughs> yeah. Uh, then yeah. we need to go to the European Union and say, actually, we need a delay because I think in the report we published by UCL colleagues, I think they f- they said that the 9th of October was the last time that Parliament could do this, right? So that we could have a referendum in time for the 29th of March. So at that point, we're in extension territory. That's interesting. I want to ask you, Anand, about this thing that some people in Whitehall were suggesting to me yesterday, which is, uh, and they're not clear on it, the linkage between the withdrawal agreement and the future framework of EU-UK relations. They're number 10, and May in particular, are insisting there's got to be some kind of linkage, but they're not being explicit about how you can do that, how you can legally connect one to the other. Uh, now, obviously, politically, you can say, look, nothing's agreed till everything's agreed, and you can say politically, look, we might not, we might cause trouble with the money, uh, we won't pay it all in one, we won't pay it in instalments, we could cause trouble there, but legally... They seem to be under the impression that somehow, and this may come back to legal advice from the Attorney General, they can link the withdrawal agreement with the future framework. I don't see how, to be honest. I can see that there being statements of good faith that the European Union perhaps says in the withdrawal agreement we we recognise that that the United Kingdom is paying off its dues and we therefore guarantee that we will act in good faith in negotiating the best possible trade deal. But the problem the European Union has is, one, it can't negotiate the future with a member state when it comes to trade, so we've got to have left. And the second thing is the people who get to decide on a trade deal are different to the people who get to decide on Article 50. Article 50 is done in the European Council by the heads of state and government by qualified majority. A trade deal is approved by all the national parliaments in the EU. And you can't preempt them. You can't say, yeah, I'm sure the Poles and their parliament will be fine with this. Uh, so I don't know how you do it, to be honest. I mean, yeah. and I, it, it, it defeats me how they'll find a way of making that actually legal rather than sort of promissory, if yeah, you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It looks like we're all about to become experts on each individual EU member state's parliament, aren't we? Absolutely. Oh, no. so, and gonna... regional ones to boot, yeah. because, of course, in Belgium, all the 
regional ones get a vote as and well. Alan, just can you remind us is what is the importance of your mum's birthday and, and the whole PR plan for the government and it's the number ten grid for Brexit? Well, I mean, my mum's ninetieth is on the twenty second, her party's on the twenty fourth, and number ten apparently had me down to go out on the stump for them on the twenty fourth. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> Better get rewriting that quickly. I'm slightly um, more scared of my mother than I am of anyone else. <laughs> well, um, join us again next week when, who knows, we might have a some sort deal. of agreement. We keep saying it's, it's every week is a crunch week, but we're losing the crunch. We're running out of weeks. so um, uh, Endless supplies of crunch. Uh, yeah. And that's <laughs> one final thing. Did you see that thing from the, uh, the arrival think tank? Not that think tanks are rivals ever, but the Centre for European Reform suggesting that um, officials in Brussels are calling this a Twix Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that? It, yeah. What, what do you make of that? I mean, a bit of explain. The except they got Brexit. it wrong. When they say the the base layer is what? Well, the, the base biscuit? layer is a sort of withdrawal biscuit, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it has a bit of caramel on top to make it sweeter, and it's all wrapped up in a tempting-looking bit of chocolate. Yeah, I have to. Con- I, the first thing I did was I went out and bought a Twix. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that was the first impact I had on me. Well, but they're not as good as us, the Centre for European Reform. They won't mind me saying that. But you see, oh, <laughs> but you see, we can extend that metaphor for, based on what you've just told us because they they will have two bites of the Twix, not just two bites of the cherry. The uh, oh. Eurosceptics, two two bars. God, okay. Yeah, well, that on that terrible joke. Um, <laughs> see you next week. <laughs> Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.